Good morning to everyone. It is great to be here with you. Thank you all very much for having me. Um, I, I suppose just a couple of things, a few things about myself before I get into the sermon, so you'll have some idea who this Yahoo is and why he's up here talking to us. Um, my wife's name is Jamie. We have, we've been married for 33 years, I think, 33 years. And uh, we have seven kids and four grandkids, uh, all of them out of the nest, all the kids out of the nest now. Um, we've been in Peru for about 22 years, just a little over 22 years now. And uh, we get to work with a great team of folks, Peruvians and North Americans. And um, the Lord's, I, I, I always tell folks, we're having a lot of fun and the Lord's doing some good things in spite of us. I'd love to, to tell you more about all of that, perhaps later if you might have some questions or something, and we can talk about some of the details of that. But I know also that your sermons don't go as long here as they do in Peru. And so we need to, I need to get to the point this morning. Um, our, our folks are accustomed to two-hour services in, in Peru. They feel like they're, they're shortchanged if we, if we go much less than that. Um, I would like to add one brief passage to the one that was read from Matthew 3 and 4. And this is because when a missionary comes to town, you've got to read Matthew 28. So um, Matthew 28, starting with verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Let me start off with a question for you. What is it, what is it that would make your life more resilient, more focused, more courageous, less fearful, and more purposeful? What is it that would make your life, and my life too for that matter, what, would it, what is it that would make our lives as Christians, as Christians living on mission in this world, what is it that would make us less fearful, more resilient, more focused, more courageous, and more purposeful? It's no secret that we're living in a world today that is very, very confused about a whole bunch of things, and and um, we're at each other's throats about a whole bunch of different things. I would like to suggest to you that one of the things, one of the main reasons that our world is in such a uh, intellectual and emotional turmoil right now is because our world has lost sight of one of the key things that we're going to see in this passage this morning. And and turn back now to Matthew chapter 3, 3 and 4. In the Garden of Eden, Adam's rebellion unleashed on the world just a a torrent of, of emotions, but primarily fear and shame. Remember, what, Adam, what do Adam and Eve do as soon as they sin against God? They're, they're afraid, 
they realize that they're naked, and so they hide themselves in the bushes and use leaves to try to cover their nakedness. Now, the fall is all about man's objective separation from God and our objective guilt, uh, our guilt before God. And, and gospel transformation takes care of that guilt that separates us from God on an, on an objective level. But subjectively, one of the key themes that runs through the whole Bible is that gospel restoration also deals with those two key or primary negative emotions of fear and shame. Uh, over and over again throughout the scriptures. I was noticing just in uh, one of the songs that we sang just a moment ago, it was talking about those two, that two pair of negative emotions. And what's happening in our world today, all of the, all of the upheaval, the, the radical changes in how we view marriage and sexuality and family and, and all of these other aspects of, of living together in community, with, with those radical changes, I would suggest to you that we're seeing all of that upheaval because we have had this dark cloud of fear and shame that has just descended upon and has filled our, our culture today. And it's made us a fearful people. It's made us a people uh, plagued with shame. It's made us a people with doubts. It's made us a people who don't know who we are and where we're going. Just a few weeks ago, the CDC issued a uh, a, a statement de- declaring a state of emergency for m- mental health for youth or for adolescents and young adults. A state of emergency for the mental health of adolescents and young adults. Really, I think it's not just adolescents and young adults. It's all of us. We find ourselves in something of a state of emergency. It, when we talk about I mean, you can read this in the news every single day about our suicide epidemic. You can read about our opioid epidemic. You can read about uh, the pornography epidemic. All of those things are related to the fact that this huge, dark, black cloud of, of shame and fear has just descended upon us. And we don't have the resources to handle that. And... So we end up tearing each other apart. So I ask again the question that I started with, what is it that would make your life more resilient, more focused? What would make your your ministry as a Christian more resilient, more focused, less fearful, more courageous, more purposeful? Well, the answer to that for each one of us is found in this passage because Here we learn about the identity of Jesus of Nazareth. His baptism is all about his personal identity. Who is this man that John baptized in the Jordan River? Who is he? What is his purpose? What is he all about? And of course, we have to ask ourselves a question. What was it that gave Jesus such resilience such courage and boldness and faith and strength and and a sense of purpose in the face of all of the obstacles and all of the difficulties and all of the 
the things that he had to face. What was it that enabled Jesus, as, as uh, Luke says in, in Luke chapter 9, he's quoting from a passage in, or alluding to a passage in Isaiah 50, he tells us that, that there came a point in Jesus' ministry where he set his face, Isaiah adds the word, like a flint to go to Jerusalem. So Jesus faces down the devil here, the devil uh, heaps all of these temptations and obstacles for him. He's facing all kinds of difficulties and obstacles from the, the, the culture around him, the Jewish leaders of the day. And yet he sets his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem, to die on a cross in Jerusalem. What was it that enabled Jesus to be so resilient, to be so focused that nothing would, would sway him from his mission? He could set his face like a flint. What was it that enabled him, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, when the weight of the world's sin is bearing down like a crushing load upon him, and yet, even as he sweats, sweats as it were, great drops of blood, nevertheless, his face is still set like a flint to go to Jerusalem to die for our sins. What was it that made Jesus so resilient, so focused? What was it that kept him from being swayed and blown around by fear, by a sense of shame, by doubts, by a lack of purpose? It was precisely what he found in this moment, this key moment. In fact, there are only a handful of stories in the gospel that get repeated in all four gospels. And, and in fact, this, this story, it not only occurs in all four Gospels, it's alluded to in the book of Acts, it's alluded to elsewhere in the New Testament. It comes up even when Jesus arrives in the last week in Jerusalem and he's debating with the scribes and the Pharisees. They want to talk, they want to debate with him about the meaning of or the significance of his baptism by John in the Jordan River. So what was this baptism all about? And what was it that what was it about this baptism that gave him such resilience, such courage and boldness and focus and purposefulness in his own life and in his ministry? I want to suggest to you this morning, um, I want to look at this passage of his baptism, but I want to look at it in connection with the story of the temptations, the three temptations that came after that, because those two, one follows right on the other for a reason. Those, those two stories are connected. But first of all, let's think about what actually happened in his baptism, what his baptism was about. We read a passage this morning, in, uh, we read Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is the psalm that gets quoted in the New Testament more than any other psalm. And primarily what we find is it's verses 7 and 8 of Psalm 2 that get quoted more than, more than the rest of the psalm even. And in that psalm, we have, we have the words of the Father spoken to His Son. And the Father says, you are my Son. This day have I begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you all of the nations of the earth as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your, as your possession. So in this great 
messianic psalm, one of the greatest of all of the Old Testament prophecies about Jesus, about who he is as the messianic king, we find that psalm echoed here in the words of the Father in Jesus' baptism. When Jesus is coming up out of the water after having been baptized by John, the heavens are opened, we're told. The Father speaks from heaven and, and says of him, says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now, where does that language come from? This is my beloved Son. It comes straight out of Psalm 2. So if we want to know what the Father is talking about when he declares this person, Jesus of Nazareth, to be the, to be his son, we have to see the connection with Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is not, it's not primarily talking about Jesus as the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, though of course he is that. But Psalm 2 is talking about the messianic king, the messianic son of David. The, the Davidic king, whenever one of David's descendants would die and a new one would ascend the throne, this Psalm 2 was part of the liturgy in the temple for the crowning of the new king. And at the moment when they place the crown on the king's head, it is supposed by, by the commentators, that's when the declaration is made, you are my son. This day have I begotten you. And that's why when Psalm 2 is quoted in the rest of the New Testament, it almost always is, is used as a proof text about the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection is the moment when Jesus ascends. He, he, he's raised from the dead. Then he ascends into heaven. And what does he do when he gets there? He sits down. He sits down on what? On a box, on a stool? He sits on a throne. And what do we call a person who sits on a throne? The kids know this, a king. So the sonship of Jesus, the messianic sonship of Jesus is all about his kingship. But also Psalm 2, the the next verse after that, that next verse, verse 8, actually says, ask of me, it's the father's promise to the messianic son, Ask of me and I'll give you all the nations of the earth as your inheritance. The ends of the earth for your possessions. They'll all be yours. Just ask me for them. Now that's what Satan, Satan is going to take up that part of it in just a moment when we get to um, the next chapter there. So first of all, when, when we look at the baptism of Jesus, what we're seeing here is the Father's confirmation that Jesus is his Son. He is the Messianic Son. And, and that means that he is the King. He is the one who has been promised by God that he would receive as his inheritance all the kingdoms of the earth, that they would all be his. Now, so when, when we talk about the meaning of Jesus' baptism, we, we, we would have to say, first of all, it's about his kingship. It's identifying Jesus as the king who must inherit all the nations. But there's a second thing going on here. It's not just about his kingship. We also see a number of other things. For example, anybody remember how old Jesus was when this took place? Matthew doesn't mention it. Luke's gospel mentions this. Anybody remember? 
He was 30 years old. Why is that important? Glad you asked. 30 years old is the age of the ordination of a priest in the Old Testament. A priest begins his ministry, is ordained to the ministry when he turns 30 years of age. So it's not just an accident or or not just incidental that Jesus begins his ministry at 30 years of age. Not only that, but here in, in this event, the baptism in the Jordan, this is a very peculiar form of baptism. The Old Testament is filled with lots of different baptisms. There are baptisms all over the Old Testament. There, there are these washings. Anytime anybody contracts some kind of ritual impurity, you've got to baptize yourself before you can go back to church, before you can go back to the synagogue, before you can go to the temple again. And so baptism is almost always a ritual that, ha- that is something that someone does to themselves. Almost every baptism in the Old Testament is a self-baptism. But there's one baptism in the Old Testament that is not a self-baptism, where the person baptized has to be baptized by another. And that just happens to be, you were already thinking this, the, the ordination of the priest in the Old Testament. In the ritual of the ordination to the priesthood, this 30-year-old priest has to be baptized by another, by the high priest. Not only that, there is an anointing with oil that is part of the ritual. And the oil, of course, is, is frequently a symbol of the Holy Spirit, which we see descending here in the form of a dove. And then also, there's the mention of the fact that it's in this baptism that the heavens are opened. Now, in, I think it's in Mark's gospel, when Mark tells us this story, he says that the heavens were ripped open. And that word ripped open is the same word used later in the gospel to describe how the veil of the temple was ripped from top to bottom. And so the picture of the heavens being ripped open is, a, is just a way of saying that Jesus is the true priest who gives us true access to God, and through his ministry, the veil is ripped from top to bottom. The heavens are ripped open so that we now, through Jesus, have this access to the Father. And of course, grasping those two concepts, the kingship of Jesus and the priesthood of Jesus, those are fundamental to understanding what's going on in his baptism. But there's a very important order to those two things uh, being fulfilled in the life and ministry of Jesus. A number of commentators talk about what, what they call an enthronement pattern in the Bible. We can see this in the case of, of Adam in the Garden of Eden. Uh, we can see this in the case of the, the crowning of Saul as the first king in Israel or, or the crowning of David. You'll have to invite me back for another time to talk about all of this, but... Um, this enthronement pattern is basically the idea that before someone can be anointed and crowned as, or, or can, they can be anointed, but before they can be fully crowned as king and ascend the throne and assume all of their royal powers, before that can happen, they first have to serve humbly in, in some kind of a priesthood. And we, in fact, see exactly that 
in Jesus's ministry. Remember the way Paul describes it in Philippians chapter 2, where he says that Jesus, even though he was in the form of God, did not consider his equality with God as a thing to be grasped after and held on to, used for his own advantage, but rather he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God highly exalted him and gave him a name that is above every other name. What Paul is talking about there is precisely this enthronement pattern, that Jesus is the king, but before he is fully exalted as the king, he has to humble himself. He has to serve his priesthood, serve as a priest first, And then if he's faithful as a priest, then God highly exalts him and gives him that glorious name that is above every other name. Okay, so with those two things in mind, the kingship of Jesus and the priesthood of Jesus and the idea that the priesthood is what he's supposed to fulfill first before he's fully enthroned as king, with that in mind, let's think about what Satan says to Jesus. Immediately after his baptism, Jesus goes out, he's led out into the desert by, uh, by the, the Holy Spirit, and that's when Satan comes to him. And what does Satan say to him in the first two temptations? Satan has heard the proclamation from heaven. Satan heard the voice of the Father from heaven. And that's why he says to Jesus, well, if you are God's son, if you're really God's son, then command that these stones would be made bread. If you're really God's son, then cast yourself off the pinnacle of the temple because it is written that he'll give his angels charge over you lest you should even dash your foot against a stone. So notice how Satan, first of all, wants to attack this sense of identity, Jesus' identity as the Son of God. That, that's what the proclamation was about. It said, you are my, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So Satan says, well, if you're God's Son, then do this. If you're God's Son, then do that. And Jesus resists both of those temptations. But then notice the third one. In the third temptation, Satan is not exactly attacking that that sense of sonship. He's not apparently doubting that now, but notice notice now he seems to be attacking the idea that that the Father really loves him because what Satan says to Jesus is, he says, if you fall down and worship me, then I will give you all of the kingdoms of the earth. And he showed him all of these kingdoms. And he said, if you fall down and worship me, I'll give you all of these kingdoms. Now, you got to put that back, put that all together with what we read in Psalm 2. What does it mean for Jesus to be the son or the, the kingly son, the messianic son? It means that he has to inherit all of the nations as his inheritance, as his possession. And so Satan comes and he attacks precisely at that point and he says, listen, yeah, we we heard God said that you're his son. He said that he loves you, but what kind of a father, if he really loves his son, would send him to die an excruciating death on a Roman cross? Yeah, he promised you all the nations as your inheritance, 
But he's telling you that the only way you can get them is if you go to the cross first. If you just fall down and worship me, I'll give you all the nations the easy way. It, it's not necessary to go to the cross. It's not necessary to do this the hard way. Just worship me and I'll give it to you all the easy way. Now some, some commentators say, well, Satan didn't have authority to give that. Satan couldn't have given him the nations. But remember what actually happens in the Garden of Eden. Adam, as we read this morning in Genesis 1, Adam was created to have dominion over the earth. Adam was created to wear a crown. And so what does Satan do when he comes into the garden? Uh, He attacks uh, Adam. In, In essence, he steals his crown. And that's why the New Testament refers to Satan over and over again as the prince of this world, the prince of the power of the air. Three times in in John's gospel, Jesus refers to him as the prince of this world. Paul refers to him in in 2 Corinthians 4 as the God, with a little g, the God of this age. And so there's a sense, a real sense in which Satan did have authority. It was a usurped authority, but he did have authority over the nations. And he could have given Jesus the king, this kingship over the nations the easy way. But what, how does Jesus respond? He says, get away from me, Satan. Be gone. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. So Jesus has the opportunity to seize the kingdom right then. To have all of these nations as his inheritance right then. But Jesus rejects that. He knows that it's coming, but he assumes his priesthood first. He's ready to to become first the priest for God's people, to offer himself as a sacrifice for our sins, so that then, and now this this gets us to the Matthew 28 passage. Matthew 28, at the end of this gospel, it's the second baptism passage in the gospel of Matthew. The first is the baptism of Jesus, but the, the second passage is about the baptism of all Christians. It's about the baptism of the church. But what does Jesus say there? That on the other side of the cross, after the resurrection, Jesus stands before his disciples and says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all of the nations. What nations? The very same nations that Satan promised to give him the easy way. The very same nations that were promised to to the Messiah in Psalm 2. And so Jesus rejects the easy path. He accepts the hard path of, of fulfilling his priesthood. And then because he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, God highly exalted him, raised him up on high, seated him on a throne, gave him his crown, and gave him title to all the nations of the earth. And that's why Matthew 28, when Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, he's not talking about his authority as God. He is God, but that's not what he's talking about. In Matthew 28, after the resurrection, Jesus is talking about his authority as as the new Adam. 
in God's new creation. The resurrection is the beginning of God's new creation. And he's the new Adam in that new creation. Therefore, he's the one who who inherits Adam's throne and Adam's crown. And all of these nations now belong to him. Now, here's what all of this has to do with the questions I was asking at the beginning. What was it that gave Jesus such resilience, such courage, boldness, focus, and purpose in the face of every obstacle, in the face of so many people that just wanted to chop his head off or stone him to death or hang him on a Roman cross? What was it that gave him his resilience and his focus and his purpose and his sense of identity? It was precisely what happened in his baptism. In his baptism, he was declared to be the messianic son of God, and he was ordained to his priesthood. Now, that's also the connection between the baptism mentioned in Matthew 28 and Jesus' own baptism. If you've been baptized into Christ, you've been inserted into his baptism. In other words, you've been inserted into his calling and into his identity. And so when you reflect upon your own baptism, just as Jesus throughout his ministry had those words of the Father ringing in his ear, you are my son, my beloved. I am very pleased with you. He had those words ringing in his ears. All of you who have been baptized into Christ, when you face your difficulties, struggles, fears, doubts, when you face those things, you need to hear those same words ringing in your ears where God says to you, because you're now in Christ, you've been inserted into his baptism and his calling, and so the Father says to you, you are my beloved son, my beloved daughter, in whom I am well pleased. But there's, and I'll wrap it up with this, but what often gets missed in this passage is that part of Jesus, and an essential part of Jesus' identity is not just that he's the son, not just that he's loved, not just that the Father's pleased with him, But it's also, Jesus is being plugged into a vocation. His identity is inseparable from his vocation. His vocation is, he's he's the great hero of this epic saga of how God is taking the world from the the ruin and chaos uh, left in the wake of Adam's sin. Jesus is the one who takes the world from that ruin and chaos and he conducts it all the way to the end of history and the marriage supper of the Lamb. He's the hero of the story. So when we ask, what was it that made Jesus courageous and bold, filled with faith, filled with a clear sense of purpose, able to set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem to fulfill his Father's will? It was that he knew what his purpose was. He knew what his identity was, but that identity implied a purpose. And it's the same way for you and me. Why why do we have 
a suicide epidemic and an opioid epidemic and all of these crazy things? Why do, why do we, why has our world just exploded in this, this, this huge dark cloud of, of fear and anxiety and shame? It's because we have lost that sense of purpose. We don't know who we are. We don't know what our existence means, what we're here for, and what our calling is. And for us as Christians, this is why it's so important to see our baptism as, as, as identifying us with Jesus, but identifying us also with his calling, with his vocation. We are to participate with him. Now, is it an accident? I'll just throw this in for free. Is it an accident? Is it uh, a casualidad, as we say in Peru, that, that the devil in our day is attacking precisely, the er- precisely areas, areas of marriage and sexuality? What is the chief of all human archetypes, to use the jargon, the psychological jargon. What is the, the primary, primary human archetype that guides us as human beings? I would argue that it's marriage. And why is that? Because marriage tells us what the purpose of all of history is. Marriage is, we, we, history starts off in the Garden of Eden with a marriage, and it goes all the way to the new heavens and the new, and the new earth when Jesus the lamb, when he participates in the marriage supper of the lamb, when he is wed. In other words, from the very beginning, marriage was just a picture of God's love for his creation. It was a picture of God's intention throughout history to unite himself with his creation. And so if you take marriage out of the world, if we take away, if we destroy this human archetype of marriage, we're left like a dog chasing its tail or a ship without a rudder. We don't know what our purpose is. We don't know where we're going. We're not, we can't possibly be plugged into this big story of, of God's history that's taking us all the way to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And that's why what we do every Lord's Day, this is a marriage service. We, we are pre-enacting the marriage supper of the Lamb. This meal before us, this is a, a little foretaste of the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is a great wedding feast that we get to participate in every Lord's Day. And so how we worship, how we live out our marriages out in the world, how we practice family, all of that is a crucial part of our mission. In other words, we can't maintain our own sanity We can't live a courageous and bold and focused and purposeful life unless we understand how our lives plug into that overall story, how they plug into Jesus, who is the hero of this overall story. And so what's what's your mission about right here in this neighborhood? Your mission is to live out your calling, to understand how how you have your identity in Jesus and you are participating with Jesus to take this world 
all the way to the marriage supper of the Lamb. This whole neighborhood needs to know that story. And they will see that story lived out in your own marriages. They will see that story lived out week in and week out as you gather here for worship. I know I've gone over 20 minutes, so let me, let's close. Holy Father, we thank you and we praise you for Jesus, who is indeed the beloved Son in whom you were and are well pleased. And we know, Lord, that in him, we are your sons and daughters, and you are well pleased with us as well. Lord, help us to grasp, even in a small measure, O Lord, help us to grasp a similar sense of our sonship and our mission in Christ and how our calling to priesthood is a calling to participate in his priesthood. Lord, help us to grasp these things. Help us to be strengthened and encouraged and emboldened in our own mission right here in this neighborhood and indeed to the ends of the earth. And we ask this all in Jesus' name, amen.